Hebrews Bible Study, Part 29, Chastening from God, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 17. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Truth be told, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture not one of the most difficult to interpret, so much as it is to accept. It is shocking to the new convert and potentially embittering to those who are unprepared. For anyone undertaking to understand what the author is saying, be forewarned that this thesis from our passage today is hard, but it is worth internalizing for the sake of spiritual maturity. The message is as follows. 1. God intends for you to suffer. 2. He intends to actively make you suffer so that you will become a better person. 3. If he did not make you suffer, then it would be evidence that he does not love you. 4. But because God loves you, he makes you suffer. Therefore, be steadfast in the faith. Of course, this summary might sound uncharitable, and many could argue that it would be better to word it this way. 
1. God intends for you to be disciplined. 2. He intends to discipline you so that you will become a better person. 3. If he did not discipline you, then it would be evidence that he does not love you. 4. But because God loves you, he engages in this discipline, therefore be steadfast in the faith. But wording it in this alternative way does not capture what the new Christian hears, and it sugarcoats what God's sanctifying chastening often involves. From Job to Joseph to David to Jeremiah and more, it is evident that what we might euphemistically call training entails real pain and suffering. The man who is new to the faith is right to point this out, but he must learn to praise God on account of it. Moving on to the commentary to enlighten us on this matter, verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Christians are expected to struggle against their sinful habits, thoughts, and dispositions. We are called to fight against our flesh, though without engaging in self-harm or mutilation. Thus, this verse condemns any theological position which would tell Christians to ignore their sin or pretend that merely going to church will cover for the entire process of sanctification. While certainly our Lord promises cleansing and sanctification through word and sacrament, the believer must still positively cooperate and put in effort in their daily lives insofar as they are able. Nonetheless, the believer's role here is mentioned in only one verse, where by contrast, the rest of the passage has to do with God's work against our sinful nature. Verses 5 and 6 say, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Citing Proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12, the author tells all readers that King Solomon addresses us as sons. But Proverbs is inspired scripture, so it is not so much King Solomon addressing us in this way as God is addressing us this way. God calls the believer his very own child by adoption in Ephesians 1 verse 5 and elsewhere. Therefore, our Lord says plainly that we must take his discipline seriously, see it as a sign of his love and acceptance, and thus strengthen ourselves to endure. Verses 7 through 9 say, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? While not all suffering is on account of this dynamic, 
it is a simple truth that God does discipline us as a father does his children. The term for discipline is at root paideia, meaning instruction or training. We get the word pedagogy from paideia. Still, we cannot soften the tone of the passage by claiming that this is about some process of education or confirmation, as it is also a term for chastening in the fatherly sense, spanking, etc., which context demands here for us to see it in the passage. The author also presents this as a necessary part of our relationship with God. A father who does not raise his children with discipline does not raise his children at all. They are not children to him so much as they are strangers or acquaintances that he just so happened to sire. Such children will grow to be abominable wretches, incapable of acting with any self-control or compassion on others. The same dynamic is seen with our Heavenly Father who adopted us. For him to not take an active role in disciplining us would be extremely neglectful on his part. If God were to save us and provide blessings for us but never correct us, we would be the most immoral people on the planet, a species of spiritual anarchists that sin freely with the confidence of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Thankfully, our God is a loving Father who will not abide seeing us corrupted. Verses 10 and 11 say, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A child disciplined is a child raised, and it is a father's duty to do this for his children. Of course, by appealing to the congregation's own experience with their fathers, the author is presuming upon a culture in which most were raised with both parents in the home. But that is beside the point. Scripture declares that we are justified, or declared righteous, by faith alone. But once someone is a baptized believer in Christ Jesus, our Lord embarks on a project for each Christian to become righteous after being declared righteous. It is for Christ's sake and on his account that our Heavenly Father counts us as being righteous, with our Savior's merits applied to us. Yet it is for our sake that our Heavenly Father begins to sanctify us, that by substance, in addition to declaration, we may be made better over time. Thus, Christian discipline is chiefly God the Father's role in sanctification, while our Lord Christ provides forgiveness for our sins and the Holy Spirit does much of the internal work on our hearts, a subject which properly belongs to a different study, but we digress. Verses 12 and 13 say, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, 
and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Inciting Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4, the author is urging the congregation to, like their ancestors, endure the chastening of the Lord with the same attitude that the prophet exhorted his hearers to have. They were called in his day to positively engage in their relationship with God, not only enduring, but strengthening themselves to keep going. The word for strengthen in Isaiah 35 verse 3 comes from chazak, which entails one's own gathering of personal might. This is cooperation with God in sanctification in the most relatable of terms. The author of Hebrews adds that in so doing, we find a great deal of healing. Consider this analogy. A coach for an athlete might make the athlete put in extreme effort in training for a big event and the event itself might be painful. We all know that sports like football, boxing, and rock climbing have their injuries that inevitably happen. But an athlete following his coach's tough tutelage benefits also from active recovery on his own time. If he does not do his squats, his stretches, take his hot shower, or ice his injuries, or even lift weights, then the accumulation of injuries will put him out of competition very quickly. This is not to say that the believer is solely responsible for healing. To be frank, God does the bulk of that. But the author here does point out a role for the individual Christian in spiritual recovery. This is the proper Christian response to our Lord's discipline to engage in greater devotion to him, and to continue in good works. Verses 14 through 17 say, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The remainder of this passage is self-evident in its interpretation. The author first gives his readers the godly response to undergoing chastening in verses 12 and 13. And now it is time to tell us what not to do. He warns the congregation that, though sinning in response to God's discipline may be tempting, it will only cause conflict and more pain. He warns against bitterness, which will only taint the believer like a contaminant or invasive weed in otherwise good soil. To blame other people is to cause needless fighting. To blame God or any other bitter emotion is to poison oneself. 
to sin in response to the pain God gives us rather than accept that it makes us better and stronger as Christians is to forfeit many rewards and blessings one could have had, just as Esau listened to his hunger rather than his inheritance. Let us not forget that Esau was still a part of Isaac's family, and he was not cast out from before his father, but his immaturity and following after his lusts meant forfeiting his birthright. The good news contained in this exhortation is then that the Christian who does endure and who does his best to avoid sin or anger at God shall receive great rewards from our Heavenly Father. Let us then not be like the child who tries to run away from home after he is spanked. Rather, let us continue on in growth, for our pain is often a sign of God's love. We will discuss more of the fantastic motivations behind this as we finish up Hebrews 12 next week. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and Amen.